Hi, I'm Wendy Dean. And I'm Simon Talbot. And this is Moral Matters. With today's episode, Unbelievably, we are kicking off Season 7. And um, did either of us really think that this would be going on so long? (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) We want to thank everyone who supported us along the way and to those who donated last season. And today we're especially grateful to Dr. Laura Bonneau for her donation in honor of Dr. Michael Benz, former chairman of plastic surgery at the University of Wisconsin, who has guided residents for decades. She says, I have much more than my career to thank him for. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. We also want to thank everyone who took the dreaded two-minute survey letting us know what you liked and what you'd like to hear more about. We love the feedback we've received, and we've reached out to almost everyone you said you'd like to hear from. We hope that we'll hear back from some of them. Please keep those suggestions coming through the contact link on our website, fixmoralinjury.org. And as if Season 7 is not enough, we have just passed the five-year anniversary of our original Stat News article and the fifth anniversary of Moral Injury of Healthcare's founding. And most of the world has moved into more of business as usual after the coronavirus pandemic. We've also shifted to more of a solutions focus, as we did during our virtual international conference with St. Andrews Healthcare last May. And we'll be making that more of a focus in this next season. But to start off, we have a fantastic guest whose book, Fragmented, A Doctor's Quest to Piece Together American Healthcare, was just published by W.W. Norton. Ilana Yerkowitz practices internal medicine and oncology on the faculty at Stanford Medicine. Her practice is uniquely focused on providing comprehensive care for patients with a history of cancer, as well as those carrying genetic diagnoses of elevated risk, and improving the transitions between cancer care and primary care. She is also an award-winning science and medical journalist who is widely published with a background in bioinformatics and bioethics. Let's have a listen. Ilana Yerkowitz, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation. So we've done a brief introduction, but could you tell folks a little bit about what your current role is? I am a physician on the faculty at Stanford Medicine. I have had a bit of an atypical career in a couple ways. So first, I'll talk about my clinical career briefly. I'm a board-certified oncologist, hematologist, and internal medicine physician, And I currently have a primary care practice that has a unique and special focus on patients who have either survived cancer or are currently living with cancer. I also play a role in uh, resident education in our primary care clinic. And at the same time, for the last decade or so, I have been a practicing science and medical journalist. So I've written multiple articles uh, about science and medicine, but this, Fragmented, is my first book. That's great. Um, I inhaled the book over a weekend, so I highly recommend that people go out and get it and read it. It is um, it's a really personal look at medicine, but it also gives a huge amount of information about why we're in the position that we're in. And I think people will find it validating, but also in- informative. Thank you. Yeah, so... You know, not many physicians are are authors. Um, I th- I think it's a unique skill set, right? That sometimes people don't expect it will be. But I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what motivated you to write the book, 
and then what it was like to write it. I felt compelled to write this book because it is the reality that I have been living in, in medicine, for the last 10 years. So I will take a step back and say my atypical career, um, I think, made this a little bit less of an atypical experience for me in terms of writing the book, in that I have written and published many articles about science and medicine. So um, I was experienced in doing that. However, a book is a very different beast. And my first approach to the book was thinking of how I was going to organize it. And I decided to organize it into nine chapters and group those nine chapters into three parts. And I thought, okay, so that's just nine long-form articles. I have done those before, so I can do it again. I just have to do this nine times. However, a book is a different thing in that all of those chapters and parts do have to connect with one another. And so once I did the entire first draft, then I went back to the beginning and made sure that all of the chapters were organized the way I intended, that there were these constant through lines going through, that the people that I brought up earlier in the book then connected to people that I brought up later in the book and made sure that I didn't lose the thread. So um, it was a unique experience doing all of that and making sure that you stay consistent throughout uh, the entire process of writing 75,000 plus words. Yeah, that's no mean feat. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> and, it's, and it is a little bit different than writing nine long form pieces. And long form pieces are different than writing, you know, short 1500 word or, or scientific articles. And the way that you the way that you wrote it makes it very accessible, I think. You know, the, the particular language and framing that you used. Well, thank you for saying that. It was, it was definitely written with the intent that this book would be for everybody. I didn't want to write it only for doctors and other professionals. I really wanted anybody who interacts with the healthcare system as patients, family members, or professionals to get something out of it. So one of the things that that I found surprising about writing a book was that it taught me things about myself that I didn't expect. And I wonder if this did the same thing for you. It did, and I think that's a very insightful comment. I feel like I always learn something about myself whenever I write, whether it's a 1,000-word op-ed or a 5,000-word long-form or then a 75,000-word book. I learned a lot while writing this book. And I think for me, what was surprising actually was just how cathartic and validating it was to get all of this down into writing because I had these thoughts percolating in my head for quite some time. And every time I went into work, I thought about that, that word fragmented, that medicine is fragmented, that I always felt like I was working in this state of being partially blindfolded, seeing gaps in my patient's story and not really fully unpacking why I was always in that state. And then writing it down and grouping it into chapters and grouping those chapters into sections just really helped me unpack exactly what I was going through every day at work. And again, my intention is that it does that for others, for other professionals as well. And so it was interesting for me that when I was writing this book before it came out, but I'd finished writing the entire book, I felt like I had just given myself a new language and a new framework for thinking about the issues that I was facing in medicine. And it would come up every day where I would go in and I would 
be blindfolded to a part of a patient's story, and I would think, okay, this is chapter three and chapter eight right here. <laughs> These are the issues that I'm facing now. And I think writing this book made me a better doctor. And I think it actually applies vice versa as well. Alana, um, as we go through medicine, um, I think we start off with most of us with some sort of an idealistic view of medicine and slowly that changes. Are there any times when you have made the realization of things not being what you thought they were and or at what point did you start to say to yourself, boy, things really are fragmented here? I think I got that sense very early on, and it was a big adjustment to realize how different medicine was in practice from what I had pictured in theory, even after I'd gone through medical school and seen patients. So I was always interested interested in both the sciences and the humanities, and I wanted to use science directly to help people, which is why I was interested in a career in medicine. And I also felt like I am the kind of person that was actually quite comfortable with uncertainty. And before I went into medicine, I heard from many mentors that medicine is difficult because you are working in a state of being uncertain, that diagnoses don't fit textbook definitions, and you might be coming up with treatment plans that are not known to work when you're trying them. And I actually was excited about that. I fully expected that medicine would be uncertain because I know that human life is complex and individualistic and uncertain. But what I didn't expect was how those uncertainties would be so compounded, not just by what is unknowable about people, but by what was unavailable. And so very early on in my intern year, I had experiences where I was admitting patients to the hospital and I didn't have medical records from outside facilities that they were being transferred from. And I was working on uncertainty, but again, this was a very different kind of uncertainty from what I had expected. And I pretty quickly realized that I would have to apply that level of vigilance that I expected to apply to diagnosing and treatment to patching these logistical holes mm -hmm. as much as the other thing, and sometimes even more. And that brings us to a line in your introduction, which I want you to expand on a little bit. It's a line that um, I think any physician uh, can identify with, and that's this line, I'm heartened by individual actions that go above and beyond, and I'm disillusioned it has come to this. Can you expand on that a little bit and say what you mean? I cite a lot of examples in my book of people who go above and beyond in healthcare to do what I just described, which is to patch these logistical holes and to put the pieces of a patient's story together themselves when there's actually no good system in place doing it for them. And so that includes an oncologist who cold called all the retired physicians at another hospital trying to get outside medical records, um, biopsy reports for a patient of hers who, that was transferring to her. And so I, I go through a lot of examples like that. And I think it is good to applaud those individuals. I think all of us in healthcare have done things like that. I, I give a very simplistic example even of, of me um, where I searched through dirty laundry chutes trying to find a patient's glasses that had transferred um, when he had transferred from the emergency room to the hospital wards that had gone missing in his sheets. And we all do things like that. However, I don't want applauding the actions the heroic actions of individuals to detract from what I believe is the much larger question here, which is why we don't have a system in place that does so many of these things 
for us. And that is the expectation, I think, in any highly complex system like healthcare, is that we have a much better and more robust system in place that is patching together these pieces. And so while I do applaud the individuals, all of us who go above and beyond, I think there's a bigger question here, and I don't want that to become a distraction from the bigger question, which is how do we move forward to a different place where the burdens are not being placed so much on individuals, but there is a more robust infrastructure in place to handle it for us. When I was reading the, that introduction, it reminded me so much of Danielle Offrey's article, which was the business of healthcare depends on exploiting doctors and nurses. And it was just, you went into much more depth about what that does both to patients and to clinicians. And, and it was validating but at the same time, I completely agree that we should not be holding individuals responsible for healing or, or making up the gaps in the dysfunction of the system. I love that Daniela Free piece. And I want to emphasize that in my research for writing this book, how much I learned that all of these logistical hoops that we're jumping through as physicians and other healthcare providers is a major source of burnout. And that surveys consistently show that bureaucratic tasks are the number one source of burnout for doctors. And surprisingly, that has stayed true both before and during the COVID pandemic. So feeling that responsibility of doing all of this paperwork and workarounds to try to patch a patient's story together is taking a toll on everybody who works in healthcare. And there are physicians who are quitting, who are quitting when they're maybe in their 30s or 40s, um, you know, far from when they expected to leave medicine because they are so burned out, not from patient care, but from everything else. Yeah. What's concerning to me is how many physicians I'm hearing who are at that point, uh, which I don't think we expected. Another line that really struck me was, trust is handed to doctors like a gift. When I read that, I thought, this is, this is the foundation of what we do every day. This is the foundational truth of why most of us went into healthcare, that our patients place their trust in us sort of unconditionally. And when we're, you know, when we are working in these systems that we can't always trust, the whole foundation starts to quiver a little bit. And to me, you know, that's kind of a hard reckoning, especially because we don't have control over those systems, like the EMR. We don't have control over changing how they work. So what is it like for you when you're writing about this, when you're living it every day, to hold that really difficult truth, to know that trust is the foundation of what we do, but we have systems in which the importance of that foundation is sometimes underestimated or overlooked or just not prioritized. I have learned over my years in practice, actually, to be more honest about the dysfunction of our healthcare system, which is not something that I expected I would be so honest about when I was starting out. And I think it's such an insightful point because when I was starting out, I fully um, you know, expected that honesty was the foundation of a good relationship between a doctor and a patient because that is what fostered trust. And so I wanted to be honest about things like prognosis and diagnosis 
and what their future is going to look like. But over my years of practice, I have actually become more honest about breaking that fourth wall, so to speak, and telling patients about the fragmentation of our healthcare system because I actually think that enhances trust. I think when you're not honest about what you're facing as a physician, um, people might think that it is a personal failing. So for example, patients would come to me all the time and say, didn't you read my chart? <laughs> and I think it's easy. Um, the temptation might be to kind of cover for the system and just kind of change the subject and get into the reason that they're there. But now I'm a bit more honest with patients. And I say things like, look, I did what I could. The chart is pretty disorganized, actually. It's not written like a book. Can you tell me your medical story so I can best, I know, or something like, I know you've already repeated this to, to multiple people, but I can best help you if you actually tell me your medical story. And so I believe that that honesty like that has actually helped restore some of the trust because now it's like we are all individuals working in this broken system and we are on the same page that we are doing what we can to combat the fragmentation that is around all of us, that we are all working in this broken system together. And I'm hopeful that um, others can, can share that sort of honesty, even though it might not feel natural initially. But I think it restores some of the trust with patients so that they don't view it as a personal failing of their physician and rather, again, that we are all players um, in this system together. Are you ever um, struck by how few patients are aware of how dysfunctional our system is? I'll give you an example. A little bit like your example of being honest with patients about their chart not looking very organized. Sometimes when I tell people just how complicated the system is for them to go from my office to the operating room, um, they sort of don't believe me. That sort of it's absurd that it would be so difficult to do something that seems so simple. And um, so I've I've always been fascinated with explaining this to people and watching their reaction to how dysfunctional things are. That is why I wrote this book, because so many people don't realize that. And I was having those same conversations one-on-one -on -one that you were having. And I think in my experience, there's kind of two camps of patients. There are people who have been unfortunately chronically ill for quite some time. But as a result of that, they are very aware of all the holes in our fragmented medical system. And they have come up with their own workarounds for getting around them. Like these are the patients who send the extra messages um, just reminding us to do something because they know that something's gonna fall through the cracks and they do that with good spirit and they're not blaming individuals um, who work on the other side. And then there are patients who are more new to healthcare and those patients are always shocked when I try to describe what is coming next. And it can range from the most simple to the most complicated thing. The most simple being actually you need to get your blood drawn in this other building and then, oh, I don't actually have access to that lab. Sometimes it comes through. Sometimes the fax doesn't come through. The safest thing to do would be to print it out and bring it to me at your next visit. And I, I live in Silicon Valley, so a lot of my patients work in Silicon Valley. And so I think the disconnect here is actually even more striking for some of my patients because <laughs> they're used to technology that can do all of these incredible things. And then I'm telling them that they might actually have to print out test results and bring them to me. 
And uh, people are often very surprised to hear all of the steps that they have to go through and then how easily any one of those steps can fall through the cracks. Yeah. I, 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 what you're saying, I share so, so palpably. And I, I do the same thing with asking people to print stuff out and people look at you like, are you totally crazy that this is better than email? And then you tell them that we still use faxes and they can't even believe that, which is a perfect segue to the, to the issue of electronic health records, which patients and physicians alike um, know have concerns. But one of the things you wrote was that we hire people to serve the needs of the electronic charts. It was supposed to be the other way around. And again, I think uh, we're all neck deep in electronic health records and electronic charts. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your thoughts on um, how those have developed the way they have and what we can do about it. I want to be clear that I do believe the electronic charts were a step in the right direction before we get to everything that's gone wrong with them. You know, 10 plus years ago, we were charting on loose leaf paper. And if we're talking about things going missing, imagine how much stuff, I mean, we all we all can imagine because we've lived it, how much stuff went missing when you were writing things by hand, or if you got another doctor's note and you literally couldn't read their handwriting. So it was a good thing that we have made the move nationally to convert paper charts into electronic records. However, I believe there was an original sin at play, which has led us to the state that we are in now. So to give a little bit of context, in 2009, Congress authorized and funded legislation known as HITECH to stimulate the conversion of paper charts into electronic medical records. And in order for hospitals to receive reimbursement for doing this, the government, the federal agency behind the operation, set this whole slew of metrics that needed to be met for hospitals to prove that they were doing this and to receive reimbursement. So this slew of metrics included a lot of clinical data that actually ended up being irrelevant to the patient's story at hand. So for example, you had to chart things, doctors had to chart things like a patient's smoking status and family history every single time they came in, whether that was for a simple cold or end-of-life care. And what happened over the years was the electronic ecosystem just became cluttered with all of this irrelevant data. And for doctors to get by and for other healthcare providers just to get through their days, they started copying and pasting to meet all of these requirements. And so then over time, it's like we've just kept adding to the garbage pile and the electronic medical records became more and more cluttered, disorganized, and redundant, not to mention the fact that errors were then perpetuated over and over and over again throughout the chart. And so the point of the electronic medical records was to help patient care in theory, right? I mean, it sounds great to have all the information at your fingertips. It was also supposed to help doctors because the electronic charts were intended to do more than just be electronic filing cabinets. They were actually supposed to also embed tools that would make sense of all of this big data and help us interpret it in meaningful ways. So the idea was that it was supposed to reduce doctors' workload. However, in practice, all of the data shows the opposite is true. So the very technology that was intended to reduce our workload has drastically increased it. And that's because human beings are doing the work of a computer and for a computer, we are doing work like data entry and putting in these irrelevant metrics every single time. And sometimes we're being blocked by the computer when they ask us a litany of questions. You can't sign your orders unless you answer and click through you know, all of these different boxes just to get through your day. And so the stats are really, really stunning, even 
to me who lives this, which is that doctors do two hours of computer tasks for every one hour facing patients. It takes a paper show that it takes between 14 and 62 clicks just to order Tylenol with the confusion causing errors in up to 30% of cases. And an average shift in the ER that's 10 hours is 4,000 clicks. And so all of this technology that was supposed to help us in breathtaking ways has unfortunately led to this state where now human beings are just trying to serve the needs of the electronic charts and it has drastically increased our workload. One other step that I wish had been different was that we hadn't oversold the EMR as much as we did. I really feel like if we had said, this is the first step, we're going to implement it and then we're going to build it rather than saying we're going to put it in place and it's going to be great from the get-go. People would be more prepared for where we are. I totally agree. And one other thing I would I would just add to that is I wish healthcare providers were more involved in the design from the get-go. So going back to the original sin of the slew of metrics that had to be met, you know, a lot of these were fundamentally designed more for billing than for patient care. And not all hope is lost. I do talk in the book about a lot of quality improvement initiatives that are being undertaken now that are often actually led by physicians to improve the technology and make it work for us in ways that are that actually enhance patient care. But I, I wish there was more of that in the very beginning before we led to we, we got to this state where things were so cluttered and disorganized that doctors are clicking dozens of tabs just to find one MRI report that got buried under an avalanche of noise. And that, that makes me think of another part of the book that really struck me was um, you said, when the system fails you, be more careful. And then a little bit later, you quoted William Deming, who said, a bad system will beat a good person every time. So that just kind of encapsulated for me what physicians feel all the time. I'm fighting the system that I know I, I don't have a choice but to fight it to get my patient the care they need. And yet, I know it's going to beat me no matter how hard I try. And I guess I would, I, I want to hope that there's, that there's a way out of that conundrum if we can get our administrators to see what we're facing and then work with us to change it. Absolutely. And I think most people who go into medicine are good people. They are dedicated people. They've gone into medicine for a reason. And that reason is often that they want to help people and they have this moral compass that tells them to do the right thing for people who are in need. And that moral compass gets very, very challenged when you work in a fundamentally fragmented system where your choices are to take hours and hours of work home with you to put the pieces together, make it happen, um, or to try to speed things up during the day, but then you risk missing something. And I don't think many people do that. Or you leave medicine entirely, or another option actually is to go part-time because I read in the book that everybody knows the secret, which is that part-time is actually full-time. And so those are the options that doctors are facing in the system as it stands. And it takes a toll on people. And getting back to burnout, this is, this is the reason I believe that doctors are burning out and leaving medicine. And thus far, our solutions from... The medical community, and I would say leaders in the medical community, have not been real solutions at all. The solutions really are just do it anyway. <laughs> just work harder. 
I don't know how you're going to do it, but just do it. And so that is why we are all in the state that we're in now, because we haven't been given, I believe, serious thought to solutions um, the same way that we have to medical innovation. We've given a lot of thought to adding all of this data and all of these things um, to patient stories, but without without um, concomitant thought and how to connect the pieces of those patient stories together in a seamless way. And so our only solutions right now to providers is just figure it out and just do it anyway. And I believe we can do so much better than that. And I believe it is urgent that we do better than that. Yeah, I I think your description of what happened to your dad was such a great illustration of that. And I'm, I'm not going to spoil it because um, I want people to read about it. But what struck me was that you had a similar experience to what I experienced when my husband became ill, which was that no matter how much data folks collected in the fragmented healthcare system that we have, the team inevitably got an increasingly distorted picture of who he was. And what that meant was a very changing set of goals for what the care he was getting was aimed at, right? And so I think on one level, it's urgent that we fix these systems for our clinicians so that the work becomes more sustainable. And at the same time, so that it becomes a more accurate description of who our patients are as they're going through their care. And, you know, I, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how you think we can bring more of that attitude of, you know, bringing family into the picture, but also creating a more robust picture of the patient in an easier way for clinicians. So I think there's a lot of solutions systemically that we can talk about that would have helped all the doctors in my father's case see his case more clearly. And those are the issues I unpack throughout the book. Some of it is the technology, which we've talked about, and how the technology could have been putting together these disparate pieces of data into a narrative that actually made sense and enabled them to see his trajectory. Another thing was actually just the mundane issue of scheduling, which I devote an entire chapter to about how many of his physicians were actually working these long 24 or 28-hour shifts, um, which led to a different doctor every day being the primary and taking ownership. So different doctors were coming in constantly in the middle of a changing narrative and being blocked from seeing his full story because of that. However, all of that being said, all of the systemic changes that I believe we need, I also believe that there are changes in mindset that practitioners can make now to better see a patient's full story and to zoom out to see that patient's full story. And one of those things, no spoilers, is involving family members who know the patient better than anybody, who know their their past better than anybody, are, are more invested in a future for that person more than anybody. And people did this very differently in my father's care. And there were some who honestly just kind of dismissed our input, even though both of my father's daughters were doctors, actually. And then there were people that, that were a lot more uh, interested in what we felt was going on and how he was doing compared to the previous day and the previous week and the previous year. And I think we bring more of that latter attitude in by actually making the case that 
asking family members for input is not just a nice thing to do. Um, I mean, it is. It is nice to talk to family members, but it also leads to better outcomes. So the doctors in my father's case who asked us for our input made better decisions. They were not missing important pieces of my father's history, and that allowed them to be proactive and to focus on the right thing, even when sometimes there was a sea of data that could have been confusing them about what was the most pressing thing in the moment. And so I would say we do this in a couple ways. We bring that attitude in first just by modeling it so that younger doctors and the next generation can can learn from from people who are already doing it. But then it's also just emphasizing that it's not just a nice thing to do. Patients will get better care if you admit your humility and involve people such as family members who inevitably will know things about the patient that you cannot. Yeah, so it's a real combination between technology that does a great job and a human connection. And I think ideally all of these things have to happen in parallel and should happen in parallel. However, uh, given that it might take some time and it probably will take some time for some of these, for example, technological problems to improve, I also wanted to empower people now to change their mindset and be able to zoom out and see a patient's bigger picture because these are changes that we can all make right now. So, Alana, um, we're, we're coming up to time, but one of the things that people often ask us is sort of both the, the smaller fixes, some of which we've talked about, but many more that, that are out there, and some of the sort of larger fixes, the, the longer-term fixes. And we've brushed on some of these topics, but if you were to just encapsulate in sort of a, a, a paragraph, where would you like to see healthcare going? I would like to see healthcare prioritize connecting the pieces that we already have as much as innovating and implementing new ones. I think we have gotten to where we are because over the years, we have gotten better actually at a lot of things. We converted paper charts to electronic records that generated a lot more data about patients. However, now we're in this state where Healthcare workers are constantly working in this state of being partially blindfolded and not knowing all of the details of their patient stories. And so I think there's a few solutions that we can focus on here, and that is how I divide the book as well. Um, first is the technology. So we've talked a lot about this already, but um, we can be doing things right now, and we are doing things right now, where doctors are leading quality improvement projects to improve the technology that we already have. Um, to prioritize connecting the pieces of a patient story that are all there. Um, I think one thing we haven't talked as much about, but that will be an important part of this, is also changing a payment model that now does not compensate for doctors to do any of this other work of putting this, uh, the pieces of a patient story together that only compensates for face-to-face -face visits, does not compensate for sleuthing through electronic charts or reading the outside hospital notes. So we have to also change a payment model so that healthcare providers are being compensated for this work and this work is being valued as actually critical to patient care. And then I would say the third thing is, is the mindset is focusing on mindsets and culture. And I talk a lot in the book about medical culture and how we sometimes can just look at a slice 
of a patient's story. And sometimes that has to do with specialization. And you are actually just being trained to only look at one piece of a patient's story. But even if each specialist is thinking perfectly, the whole can still sometimes fall apart. And I would encourage people now, generalists and specialists, to develop mindsets where they do zoom out and look at the bigger picture. And I think the empowering fact of the matter is that specialists can do this too. It doesn't mean overstepping your expertise, but just looking at how all the different care team members are interpreting a patient's story, adding them up and seeing whether they add up to a reasonable conclusion. And if they don't, taking a step back and and pushing the teams to communicate better. So I had an interesting lunch with a recently retired orthopedic surgeon this weekend. And I asked them what they were going to miss about their practice. And they said, I'm going to miss asking people what they like to do and watching their faces light up. And this surgeon knew more about their patients than probably many other physicians that I know, because they would take five minutes, 10 minutes to ask. So they would know the context in which they're caring for their patient. Um, and I thought that was, that was really remarkable and a good example. I love that. And I, I think we all get a lot of joy out of doing that and getting to know our patients as people. I think we do need to move to a place where we have time to do that. And doctors don't get 10-minute visits with patients where if you do that, that takes up half the visit and then your entire schedule is backed up for the rest of the day. And, and that is crucial. Um, getting to know your patients as human beings, it is a nice thing to do. It feels good, but it also allows you to provide better care for them. And I think it is at the heart of why many of us went into medicine and why many of us stay in medicine, despite all of these problems that we've talked about. Well, Alana, um, thank you so much for, for joining us today. I think that's a perfect place to, to sign off. Hopefully, uh, as people read your book, more questions will come in and we would love to have you back sometime to discuss those. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Wendy, thank you for inviting Alana on uh, to speak to us. I think that she is a perfect example of uh, the kind of physician who's listening to this podcast already in terms of the various frustrations she has. And it is just wonderful that she has gone to the lengths of writing this down and communicating it with so many others. Yeah, I I think not only did she capture the frustrations of physicians and the reasons behind it, but she wrote it in such a way that it's incredibly accessible to all of us. No matter who reads the book, they're going to see themselves in it, whether it's a patient, a family member, or a physician. And that's one of the things that you and I have spoken about a lot uh, over the last few years, which is that the one of the important things about moral injury and about the uh, frustrations with the healthcare system is that these things need to be out there for everybody. It's no good just for physicians to know that there are problems or just for physicians to be talking about what they think should be done. It's really important for everybody to be aware of what's going on because the fixes are far bigger than the individuals. Yeah. And there were so many times when I was reading this book, literally, I couldn't put it down one weekend that I thought, well, here it is. This is, this is moral injury right here. I 
I know that there's fragmentation. I know that I should be taking better care. I know that no matter how good of care I take, you know, no, how, no matter how careful I am with this data, somehow this broken system is going to beat me. Mm-hmm. That feels like moral injury. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things we talked a little bit about today was a lot of the individual solutions and some of the immediate things. Um, I do think it's worth remembering that there are probably uh, some much bigger things that we'll talk about over the course of the season as well that will hopefully start to alleviate some of the pressure on the individuals to actually fix things themselves. Yeah. We always end up talking about what can an individual do tomorrow because people are desperate for relief. So we always talk about that. My biggest worry is making sure that we keep enough pressure on the system, that the system changes, and that we don't have just individual solutions. Agreed. Thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios. To learn more about the nonprofit Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at fixmoralinjury.org. If you'd like to support future episodes of the podcast or any of the work we do, you can make a donation while you're there. Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes so you can continue the conversation and you can help spread the word by sharing episodes with friends and colleagues. I am so grateful to the people that have texted me when they've finished listening to an episode or uh, emailed me when they've been reading the book. It's just so helpful to hear what you're thinking. Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, that makes it easier for new listeners to find us. I second Simon's gratitude for those notes that we get. It really helps to know that this work is helpful. Thanks for listening. Stay well.